don't know what you make of all that. And I wonder whether there's anybody who is here this morning who has ever thought, I'm just a bit of a rubbish Christian. I wonder whether there's anybody here who, there's a hand that went up there, and I wasn't actually asking for a show of hands, but I'm hoping that uh, the fact that one went up means that perhaps uh, that person isn't alone. I wonder whether you've ever thought that. I wonder whether you've ever sort of thought, well, that probably everyone else in church, you know, they're probably much holier than I am. I wonder if anybody's ever thought, I'm not sure whether being a Christian is really working. You know, we're supposed to have our sins forgiven. We're supposed to be growing in holiness. But actually, here I am again and again, coming back week after week, confessing the same old flipping things over and over again. Why do I keep losing my temper at my spouse? Why do I keep wasting money on myself instead of being generous with what I've been given towards others? You know, why am I still... I don't know, whatever it is, swearing or smoking or drinking too much or, or something that you feel I just ought to be rid of. You know, why am I not spending more time in prayer and reading the Bible and enjoying the peace that passes understanding in the presence of the Lord? Why, why am I just a bit of a rubbish Christian? Am I the only one? Dave's laughing. I hope anyone, somebody else here identifies with this. I hope that if, uh, that if anybody else has ever thought like that, that if you, if, and I've spoken to actually people who've said that to me since being in Melksham, they've said something like this. If, every, if everybody else knew what I was really like, I'm not sure I could really come back to this church. People, if, if you've ever thought like that, well, can I introduce you to one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible? Look at what Paul actually says in verse 15. Hopefully you've got Romans 7 open there. Just listen to verse 15 and verse 19 and verse 24. I think these are some of the most encouraging verses in the whole Bible. Verse 15, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. Can anyone else identify with that? Or verse 19, I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Or verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Strong stuff, isn't it? Well, we're looking, as we said, at Romans over the course of this summer. It's the most explosive letter that's ever been posted. And if you've ever read Romans before, you've studied it, or you've read about it, you may know that chapter 7, which we just read, is one of the most disagreed about chapters in the Bible. Um, Basically, for literally for hundreds of years, all the theologians and the scholars and, and, and the preachers and the teachers have disagreed passionately about how to understand Romans chapter 7. Because what happens is, for the first few hundred years of the church, they just couldn't believe, and some Christians today still can't believe, that when Paul says these things, and he's speaking about himself in the first person, they just can't believe that Paul, St. Paul, is actually writing about himself. You know, when he talks about his own struggle with his sin, surely Paul is talking about, he must be talking about this experience before he became a Christian, mustn't he? Struggling with sin? Or maybe he's talking about somebody else or something like that. You know, how can he be talking about himself as a Christian if he's just spent the whole of chapter 6, which we looked at last week, telling us that we're dead to sin? You know, that when Jesus died, he died to set us free from our sin. And how can he have just said all of that? And in chapter 8, which we're about to come to in the next few weeks, where he goes on to tell us how we can be filled with the Holy Spirit to have victory over sin in this life, 
How can he say all of that and then here in the middle of all that in chapter 7 go, oh, what a wretched sinner I am. I don't actually do what I want to do. How can he say all of that? And they just couldn't understand it until uh, St. Augustine came along in about the 4th century and he goes, you know what, everyone? I think what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 is basically everybody's experience of being a Christian. He's basically come along and said, look, this is, doesn't this chime with our experience of trying to live the Christian life? We want to do God's law, but we find we can't do it. We're living in this kind of attention. And the reason this is so encouraging is because when we read the letters of St. Paul, we read the Bible, Paul went off around the world planting churches and teaching everybody the gospel. He wasn't going, oh, you miserable sinners, you know, you need a bit, bit more like me, Saint Paul over here. You know, you all need your sins forgiven. No, he goes, I am a sinner, and I'm still a sinner, and I'm in need of God's grace. So what do we need to learn from Romans 7 that is going to help us live the authentic Christian life that acknowledges that we aren't able to live up to the standard we want? See, Paul is saying this is, this is kind of the authentic Christian experience struggling against sin. It's the person who doesn't struggle against sin or the person who doesn't realise there's a problem who thinks, oh, I'm a perfectly good person. I didn't need to worry about God's law. That's the person Paul, I think, would be worried about. But the person who goes, oh, I want to do God's law. I'm just really struggling. That's the authentic Christian experience. Well, what, what can we learn from chapter 7 which is going to help us live the authentic Christian life? I think this is showing us three things that we need to hear this morning. Three things that we need. First of all, it says we need the law. It says we need humility. And it says we need a saviour. We need the law, we need humility, and we need a saviour. So first of all, it says we need the law. Now, I think this is surprising. When we, when we came to hear about uh, Psalm 19 earlier, when we said we we're going to think about the law, I wonder what came to mind. I think there's a great big temptation when we realise that we're struggling with sin, to just want to sort of get rid of God's law. And many people say, don't they, something like this. They say, oh, the Bible's just a bunch of rules. You know, and most of them are in the Old Testament anyway. You know, isn't God a God of love? Why do we even need the law? It must be the law which is the problem. Well, have a look down at that chapter 7, verse 7. This is the que- exactly the question which Paul anticipates we're going to ask. He says in chapter 7, verse 7, what should we say then? Is the law sinful? You know, is that the problem? And he says, certainly not. Certainly not. Paul would agree with King David, who of course had troubles of his own keeping God's law, as we all know. Paul would have agreed with King David that it's not the law which is the problem. God's law is perfect. It's much more precious than gold, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. What's so good about God's law? Well, for one thing, Paul says, uh, God's law teaches us right and wrong. Have a look down verse 7. What shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. He says, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law, and that's the Ten Commandments he then quotes, had not said, you shall not covet. The law teaches us right and wrong. I don't know whether you watch much of Glastonbury uh, Festival. Um, I watched a 
bit of Glastonbury. The band that I liked the most, I don't know whether anyone here would have appreciated the Manic Street Preachers, uh, but that was a band I was quite into when I was at school, and they, I had a copy of their album, which um, the famous album from the 90s was entitled This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. Sounds like Meghan Markle, doesn't it, on Oprah. This Is My Truth, Now Tell Me Yours. Well, actually, if there's no God, then morality is relative, isn't it? I think this is right. You think that's right. But nobody's actually right, because there's no such thing as actual right or wrong. Morality must be decided by consensus. And as long as everybody agrees this is the right thing, well, that is, has to be right, doesn't it? Nothing to say that actually, say, for example, the legal restrictions which the Taliban have introduced in Afghanistan since they retook power, no, nothing better or worse about them. It's just that they agree that's, what, that's their truth. You know, we, we might go, hang on a minute, I think that law's a bad law. But if there's no God, then there's no reason to say that one set of laws is better than any other. But... If God has spoken, if he's actually revealed right and wrong to us, then that means that morality is objective. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what sin actually was if it wasn't for the law. It's not only good because it tells us right and wrong, Paul says here, it's actually life-giving. Verse 10 says that the law was intended to bring life. Now, just imagine if everybody actually kept God's law. Imagine if everybody obeyed the Ten Commandments, everybody told the truth, and nobody lied or cheated or stealed. You know, can you imagine how good that would actually be, how life-giving it would be? You know, if every husband and wife treated each other perfectly, you know, perfectly loving, you know, imagine if everybody just gave so generously of their money to help their neighbour out when they were in need. Can you imagine if everybody actually just did what God said? Yeah, there'd be no police. We wouldn't need the police, would we? There'd be hardly any government. We certainly wouldn't need any distribution of money. We wouldn't hardly need taxes or social services. Society would work perfectly, wouldn't it? Because what, it, what does the law actually tell us to do? Jesus was asked repeatedly, wasn't it? What's the most important commandment? Jesus was asked. And he says you can summarise the law in one word, which is to love, isn't it? Jesus says you can summarise the law like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you imagine if everyone actually did that? If everyone actually just loved, like God says to? If John Lennon goes, oh, imagine. Imagine what society would be like. I actually think John Lennon's great song is basically saying, imagine if everybody actually just obeyed what God has told us to do. You know, so imagine if anybody says, oh, you know, the Bible, oh, it's just a bunch of rules. I kind of want to go, yeah, what brilliant rules they are. Can you imagine how amazing it would be if everybody actually kept them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. Society would be amazing, wouldn't it? Is the law sinful? Certainly not, Paul says. Is the law the problem? Should we just get rid of it? No, verse 12 the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous and good. We should all be like King David. We should all go, his law is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, or like Psalm 1, blessed is the one who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. They should be like a tree planted by streams of living water who delight in the law of the Lord. The problem isn't the law. 
problem is keeping the law, isn't it? The problem isn't the law. The law isn't sinful. The problem is keeping the law. Have you seen um, Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams? And there's that extraordinary scene. It's all about the Vietnam War and there's bombs going off and there's napalm and villages being burnt and rocket launchers and gunfire and women and children crying and it's awful. And over the top of that montage of the horrific scenes of Vietnam is um, what a wonderful world, you know, Louis Armstrong. We need God's law, firstly, but we need humility because actually we can't keep God's law, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Verse 18, good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. See, one of the things the law does, the law shows us what's right and wrong, teaches us morality. Another thing it does is show us, like a mirror, it shows us our own sinfulness, doesn't it? The more we know God's law, the more we know God, the more we know how difficult it is to keep God's law. But it's worse than that, because it's not that we, it's not that the law just shows us we can't keep the law, the law actually makes us want to break the law. Have you noticed that? Look at, look at what Paul says in verse 7 again. Go back to the beginning. Is the law sinful? No. I wouldn't have known what sin was except for the law um, because the law says don't covet. But, verse 8, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So it, was, <laughs> it was the fact that he'd been told not to covet which made him want to covet even more. Why is it that knowing something's wrong makes you want to do that thing even more? Isn't that true? The sign says, do not enter. And we go, hmm, wonder what's in there. I've been noticing this all week, watching Fred, and I've said to Fred all this week, because I've been roaming, reading Romans 7, I say, Fred, I think, can we not do that, please? And I can almost see the cogs turning in his head as he kind of goes, huh, now you've said that, I want to do that even more. The law... Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the law, verse 10, he repeats the same thing. Deceived me and through the commandment puts me to death. Now this is saying something really quite profound, I think, about human nature. It goes all the way back to the beginning, doesn't it? To the garden. To the very first law that was given. Do not eat the fruit. What is it about the forbidden fruit... It's the very fact that it's forbidden which makes it even more appealing precisely because it's forbidden. What is going on? Why are we such a mess? Why is it? How can Paul say in chapter 6, we're dead to sin, we're free from sin? And now he's saying, verse 14, I'm actually still to some degree a slave to sin. Well, the reality is that the Christian life is lived in tension. There's a tension. There's a tension running all the way through the book of Romans. And it is saying that we live in... It keeps talking about... If you read Romans, it talks about being in the realm 
of Adam or in the realm of Christ, the realm of the world and the realm of the spirit. And we live in the overlap, as it were, of the two realms, the two ages, the now and the not yet, the in-between of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We're in between the inauguration of the kingdom and the start of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. The kingdom is now and the kingdom is still to come. And this tension that we live in, it's been lots of uh, people I've heard it described as a bit like living after D-Day but before VE Day. So we're kind of in the in-between bit. You know, in, in one sense, the war's over because the decisive blow against the enemy has been struck. But there's still a battle raging. Even though victory is inevitable, there's still a war on. So verse 22. Paul says, In my inner being... I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That's the tension. So we need God's law, firstly. The law is good. tells us right and wrong. But we need humility because we can't keep it. So thirdly, finally, This is really showing us that we need some help. We need a saviour. We need someone who is able to keep the law, who is able to rescue us and who is able to deliver us. Look at the way all of this kind of internal cry of anguish from Paul climaxes in a kind of, who's going to help me? Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? If Paul recognises he can't keep God's law by himself, which is hugely encouraging to us. So if anybody here thinks, gosh, I'm not a very good Christian, I must be the only one. Well, the fact that Paul, Saint Paul, is able to say this ought to make us feel quite a bit better about ourselves. You know, elsewhere he says, what the Book of Common Prayer, if you have the old Book of Common Prayer service, talked about the comfortable words. Hear what comfortable words our Saviour Christ says. And hear what comfortable words Paul says. And Paul says, this is a true saying, worthy of all to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then it doesn't include the next bit, of whom I am the worst. Now that should make us feel a bit better about ourselves. But Paul also says that he knows someone who can help, who can, verse 24, rescue me, who can, verse 25, deliver me. And of course the great thing is that actually there is somebody who never sinned. There is somebody who was not subject to the law of sin and death, who at his baptism was told, I'm pleased with you, perfectly pleased, who had the desire to do what is good and was able to carry it out and said in the garden, not my will, in another garden, he wanted to do something else, but he said, no, not my will, but yours be be done. And they put him on trial and they, all the lawyers gathered around tried to pin some accusation on him. Nothing would stick. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was, as the book of Hebrews says, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And yet, who despite being literally perfectly sinless, had a reputation for being the friend of sinners. This is what's so good, isn't it? I mean, because Jesus, what this is saying is Jesus loves us just as we are this morning.
He doesn't want us to stay just as we are. He wants to rescue us. You know, think of the woman caught in adultery, and they're all queuing up to stone her, and he says, hang on a minute, let, who's without the first sin cast the first stone? And everybody goes away. But he doesn't leave her there. He then, when everyone's gone away, says to her gently, quietly, now go, leave your life of sin. But he doesn't stop there either. He doesn't just say, go and don't sin anymore. Well, that's not very helpful, is it? Because I can't keep the law even if I wanted to. He gives us his spirit to help us in our weakness, which is what we're going to hear next time as we come to chapter 8. How we can have victory over sin and death through the power of the Spirit. So if anybody here this morning is feeling like we're the only sinner in church, be encouraged. St. Paul paints an incredibly realistic picture about what it's like to live the Christian life and the struggle against sin. So don't chuck the law away. Let's be like David. Let's love the law. Let's meditate on it. Let's realise it's sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. But let's also not be surprised that the more we try and keep it, the more we realise we can't. But the more we know our sin, the more we know we need a saviour and the more grateful we are for the one who will come and rescue and deliver us from this body subject to death. Thanks be to God, Paul says, at the end of all that, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.